Okay. One more time. I don't want a pickle. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Just want to ride on my motorcycle I don't want to die Just want to ride on my motorcycle Well, it's been about a hundred episodes now that we've been singing this dumb song But you know, it's amazing that we could sing a song this dumb for that long. But you know, what's even more amazing than that is that we haven't been sued for stealing intellectual property. But that's the internet. We told nearly everything there is to tell about the show, who we are, and where we're from, what we do it for, and all that, but we've always neglected to explain the significance of the pickle. Lobbing pickles. You see, it was this time Moto One sent us out to go cover a race in Utah. So we got a year all with a sidecar and headed over the mountains to go see. The year all sidecar, the most dangerous kind of motorcycle and sidecar to be riding because you see there's well, it's outdated design and poor build quality. We was screaming down the side of this mountain road at 36 miles per hour. I was taking notes, had my microphone. All of a sudden, the wind, it ripped the microphone out of my hand and it wrapped itself around a yield side. At the same time, there was a sharp turn in the road. On one side of the road there was mountain, and on the other side there was nothing, just the rest of Utah. We proceeded to make a sharp turn off of the road as the sign didn't move. It stayed stuck in the ground. The microphone stayed wrapped around the side. I held onto the microphone cord with one hand, and I held onto the sidecar with the other. It wasn't the microphone cord that made us turn off of the road. It's just that your alls are hard to ride. So all of a sudden we found ourselves doing 500 feet down and 36 miles per hour to the side at the very same time. And hey, we thought, you know what, man? This is it. This is the end. This is it. And we felt it was our duty to do one last podcast for the world. So I plugged in the other microphone to the recorder. We sang the song, we did Best Worst Bike. The worst bike was the Ural, and Best Bike was anything with better suspension. And in a quick round of made-up motorcycle, all the hypothetical bikes were inflatable. So then I pulled out my phone, uploaded the show. And you know, friends, the most amazing part is, is that when we got to the bottom of the cliff, we didn't die. We landed on a decan. 
and it died. We bounced off the Neekin, went screaming into Salt Lake City at 38 miles per hour, singing the motorcycle song. We pulled up into an immaculately clean gas station. And there was a woman there in an apron with a pickle on it, wearing sunglasses, taking notes on our behavior. We kept on driving. We got ourselves to the Utah Motorsports Complex. As we went through the gates, I saw a man wearing an armband with a pickle on it. Most of our interviews throughout the day, the racers all of a sudden just mysteriously had to be swept away by people wearing pickle armbands. After a while of this, I said, that's enough. We need to go to the media center. We need to go to race direction and get to the bottom of this. So we did. And up there was that same woman in the apron. She said, I'm Mama Clobman, and we don't like your kind. We feel that we have exclusive rights to motorcycle pickle-related content on the internet, and we're going to shut you down. I said, this is America, and we stormed out. When we went to do our next interview, I pulled out my recorder, and it had been replaced with a pickle. And that very moment, friends, I knew for sure that, hey, I didn't want a pickle. Just want to ride on my motorcycle And I don't want to tickle I just want to ride on my motorcycle And I don't want to die I just want to ride on my motorcycle Last week I was on the bike I ran into a friend named Mike I ran into a friend named Mike Mike no longer has a bike He cried I don't want a pickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle I don't want a tickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle I don't want to die Just want to ride On my motorcycle Okay, and it is finally here Episode 100 of the Nokomoto podcast. Finally. So let's see here. I am your host, Moto GP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. Yep. No guest today. We are just going to bask in the glory of episode 100. Light lifting, no entertainment for you. No, we've got some things ready here. <sighs> Where do we begin? Where do we begin? It's been 100 episodes. We've got. So many things to cover. We're going to do some interesting stats. We're going to talk about the guests that we've had. We're going to talk about significant moments that we've had in the show. We're going to talk about things that we want to do with the show over the next hundred episodes. We are going to play a lot of the best and the worst of everything that we do, basically. So let's see here. Um, we're going to replay 
a best and worst bike that not many people have heard. The people that have heard these best and worst bikes from early episodes, overwhelmingly these were voted the best best bike and the worst worst bike. But as we look at the listener numbers, these episodes came out before we had most of our listenership. So you're going to be in for a treat as we play replay a little blast from the past best and worst bike in a moment. But I don't want to just start the show with recycling material. So first off, I want to go through some interesting stuff, stats that I looked up for the show. In the first year, so the first 52 episodes or whatever, how many listens do you think the show had, Swigs? In the first 52? Ooh. I don't know what the number was at the time. By now, it's probably close to... And just what it was at the time. Oh, because I, I know what time. it was. Yeah. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> I guess we had probably on average like four to five hundred. So it's got to be like 10, 11,000. It was almost exactly 10,000 listens. Ooh. So in the last calendar year, you know, from today, how many listens do you think we had? Well, I have the stats page. So. Oh. It's it's about 60,000. No, it's about 71,000. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. I do know how to count. <laughs> so the last year has been huge for our growth. You know, People have told, heard me say, like, oh, we got a whole bunch of new listeners. Here's the disclaimer for new people every week. There's a reason for it. There's new people every freaking week. All right. Now, here's some more interesting stuff. How many countries... Do you think the Nokomoto podcast has been heard in? Uh, so it's, we, I bet there's a ton that we have like one listener in. So it's gotta be like, yes, there are, but I'm, it still counts for me. Right. So, it, I mean, just on the numbers and the distribution, it's gotta be like 80, 92. Ooh. How many cities do you think the show has been heard in total? How many cities? Ooh. Uh, well, based on how they do the numbers and how they count cities, it's, it's not quite actual cities. So it's gotta be like 350. 3,262 cities. Okay. (laughs) It's within an order of magnitude. All right. Now, uh, let's go with our biggest cities. Biggest cities. Okay. Um, well, in the first year, we should give a shout out to Niceville, Florida was a big spot for us, but they got quickly overtaken. Um, so who do you think's number one all time plays? Number one all time plays. It's got to be like San Francisco or Seattle or Austin. I'm okay. gonna go. I'm gonna. Go, I'm you gonna just go covered like thirty percent of the country right there with that triangle. I'm gonna go with Austin. Right now, it's Portland. Ooh, yeah. So Portland has fallen from the number one spot like in recent months, but still all time plays. Portland's number one. Denver's number two. Bunch of hipsters. Chicago quietly in number three. Like never popped to the top of the list on any individual week or anything. Mm, okay. Uh, Toronto, number four, which I assume is a lot of 
Bruce's influence around that area. All right. Dallas beats out Austin significantly in number five. Atlanta, which is another quiet one. Seattle, finally, is six there, uh, which is weird because Seattle has huge spikes. There's weeks where I just notice lots of listens and weeks where I'm like, where the fuck did Seattle go? Melbourne, the only foreign city here, makes the list in top ten. Then we got Fort Collins nearby here and L.A. rounding out the top ten. It's kind of interesting. Now, 80% of the audience is in the U.S., 10% in Europe, and then Australia by itself makes up 7%. Just some interesting stuff there. Uh, The Australians really getting their act together this last year for our listening audience. So... Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, what else did I have for us to cover here? Well, you know, tell you what, let's do a quick thing here and play the best, best bike. And then we'll come back with more 100 episode stuff. Right? Okay. So, what episode was this one from, Swigs? Uh, I can't remember. I'm going to. I'm gonna cheat and use our uh our fan made Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll bring that up. Our fan made uh best worst bike site. Uh it was episode fifteen. Wow. Okay, so this is you doing best bike in the world, episode fifteen. I believe we did not record this one at Nokomoto headquarters. This was recorded at my house. So it'll sound a the little bit. The satellite different. office. The satellite office. So it'll sound a little different, but you had a reveal, not a reveal, uh, something planned in the middle of this that you didn't tell me about, and I lost my shit, and so did many other people listening. So uh, this was a good one. This was this was your moment. So <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's play this, and then we'll come back. You know what I think? I think it's time for best worst bike in the world. Okay, and are you ready to do this, Swiggy? Hang on a minute. I don't think we need the drum roll for this. Oh, no? What do we need for this? Uh, I'll show you. Are we really doing the GPC 900? Yes, we are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. All right. Let's uh let's start off a little pedestrian. We'll work our way up. Mm-hmm. All right. So, GPZ nine hundred, staple of the eighties. Do do we need to say just really quickly if there is anyone young listening? Uh, this is the Top Gun bike, hence the Kenny Loggins music. Yes, it's twenty eighteen. I feel like I got to throw the young kids a bone there. I have I do know a lot of younger guys at my job who have never seen Top Gun. I wasn't happy about it. Those idiots. I know. All right. Okay, so so lay it on me cuz I haven't looked at the numbers on these for a while. Uh 11 to 1 compression ratio, 108 horsepower at the crank, 63 foot-pounds of torque at 8500 RPM. Really? Yeah. Wow. And okay. it's a 6 a 6 speed. Oh, yeah, it's also a six-gallon tank. Get out. Was it really? Well, this is the GPZ900R. 
Yeah. Which is yeah, 80, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, 5.8 gallons. Um and apparently still like 41 miles per gallon. Yeah, so this was I know the fastest production bike in the world when it was new. Like hands down, it was crazy. This changed everything. Right. So at the time it also had 41 millimeter forks. Mhm. Which was hot shit at the time. Yeah, it was. I mean, we've only bumped up to 43 millimeter forks since. Yep. Now, there's a lot of things about this bike, and we can harp on about the specs. You also have to consider... No, you can't harp on about the specs. This was absolutely the top shit at the time. Oh, it totally was. This is, what, 83 or 84? It's, at, it's actually all the same specs. It's virtually unchanged. All right, yeah, yeah. So, so let's, uh, let's bring it up on the big screen here and really just sink in the beauty that is this machine. Now, I started saying... What was it, like four or five years ago that everyone needed to start buying these up like crazy and mm -hmm. no one fucking listened to me? Right. And now they're going for crazy money. I was telling like everybody I could tell, buy these things. This is like the first of so many things that have come like like the like we said the cb750 so many bikes have a little bit of dna this is a closer ancestor yeah this this thing is yeah a closer ancestor that's a great way to put it every track bike has even more dna of this than the cb750 in it it's yeah. crazy this started it all absolutely nuts look on the wikipedia page it even mentions top gun Right. I mean, this just came out with such a bang. This is one of the first, like, you know, sort of full fared, fleshed out, beautiful, you know, machines. I, I love the way it looks. A few years ago, people really hadn't come around to how beautiful it is yet. Uh, something about the front fairing and the way it points down, like, was a little off putting. So there was one major aspect of this bike that put people off for a long time, which is. Unfortunately, it is an 80s bike, so it does have the square headlight. It's got a lot of blockiness to it. Yeah. And, you know, we moved away from that pretty fast in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when you really go back, now that there's enough distance between us and the 80s now, when you really go back and look at it, it absolutely nailed every style element of it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But you couldn't see that from the 90s, and you couldn't see that from the early 2000s. Now that there's enough distance, you can really reflect on the, the whole thing, and in the context, it, it all just looks fabulous. Look, uh, okay, everything that I seem to get into in bikes becomes a big fad like five years later. Everyone needs to start fucking listening to me, okay? Because five, six years ago at least, you know, and I know at least definitely four years ago, but, but, but before these started jumping up in price, I was going on and on and on about how landmark, iconic, and important this bike is to the history of motorcycles. And everyone was like, are you kidding me? Those 80s ninjas? Those are awful. Those are lame. What are you talking about? And now try to find a good one for under six grand. A, a decent one. Try. 
four years ago, you could get these for 500 bucks. Good ones. No one cared. No one gave a shit. I'm not, you know, you know what? And, and you know, I'm, I'm not even going to like release my secret list of the bikes that I know are going to be like this in a few more years. I'm done. Okay. I'll throw everyone a bone. The first year Toyota Prius is going to be a collector's car. No one thinks I'm making any sense when I say this. Wait five more years. You're going to start seeing them at car shows and shit. Okay. So move. So hang <laughs> away on. from that. So the- I, Okay. Well, one moment. You can't really mention this bike without talking about Top Gun. No, you can't. And now a lot of people will say that Top Gun kind of exposed this bike and, you know, gave it that exposure and that visibility. I don't think that's true. I think it's the other way around. <laughs> I think I think Top Gun was inspired by the GPZ 900R. Okay. Now, if you haven't seen Top Gun in a while, you could be forgiven for mistaking it as an action movie. Okay. But in reality, it's a love story. (laughs) Okay. You see, Maverick is never in any real danger. He's not at war. He's training. Yes. If he flunks out of Top Gun, there are no consequences. Mm-hmm. He's constantly just being an asshole. True. And he's surrounded by the most incredible support network you have ever seen. Yeah. He's got his soon-to-be girlfriend. Right. Who's helping him at every turn. He's got... Goose. He's got Goose, his main man. Even Iceman, who's somewhat superficially set up as the villain, is just trying to help him. It's true. And in reality, the thing about Top Gun is that Maverick, he's not following a hero's journey. He's not really, um... Well, I think <sighs> he shoots down a couple MiGs in the third act, but that's about it. Well, he does, but that's not thats not even the end scene, you see. Mm-hmm. The end scene is him meeting up with his girlfriend back at the bar. And her sticking around and realizing that he'd finally found his confidence and realized he didn't have to prove anything to anybody anymore and found his place in the world and he was content and he had finally grown into a man and matured. And this is a common thread with the GPZ 900 and every GPZ 900 owner. Okay. see... (laughs) The way it works is you get this bike. Okay. You know, you're young, you're you're dumb. And full of cum. And full of cum. (laughs) And you think you're hot shit. And you go out in the streets and you tear it up and nothing can stop you. No one can catch you. But everyone starts to resent you. Mm -hmm. You're too good. You're too fast. You don't know your limits. You're just a danger to everybody around you. And you keep trying to tell people how good you are, how fast you are. But it doesn't seem to matter. And you're trying to find acceptance in other people. But at a certain point, (laughs) you realize you don't have anything to prove. You're not trying to beat anybody. And in reality, 
you finally comfortable with who you are <laughs> and what you have and what you can do. And you stop racing. You just... It, I think I've made my point. Yeah, I I don't know if there's anything I can say that that really adds to that. <laughs> All right. There we go. Kawasaki GPZ 900R, the first ninja I do want to point out, I, I think I said this in the last episode or two episodes ago, if you uh, look up a picture of this, the Ninja logo, the 80s Ninja logo on the side, still the same Ninja logo. I guess we should also just point out really quickly, just just summarize, fast, agile, collectible. Landmark cool, technology. Historical landmark. There's not a lot this bike is missing. No, no, it's complete. It's perfect. It, it like like the CB750 and so many other brilliant things. Just as it exists, its its legacy is secure. It doesn't need to be anything other than what it was at the time, and in that way, it is absolutely perfect. Well, that was fun. I think everyone's a little bit wiser, a little bit more. You know, just everyone's grown more as a person having heard that again. All right. Let's talk about some of the guests that we've had for the last hundred episodes, right? Let's see here. We had so twice we've had John Del Vecchio on. The first time was to talk about his program, Cornering Confidence. He does sort of secondary uh motorcycle training skills, does a very good job at it. And we talked to him all about trail breaking. There was like a two-month period where every podcast had to talk about trail breaking, and we were no different. We actually may have been one of the first ones to do it. We may have been on the leading edge. And then we had him on again to talk about motorcycle design and inherent safety flaws in the design. Tank angles, handlebars, other things like that. That was super interesting because I don't think anyone else has that. Has, a, has ever talked about that. Just John and then us talking to John. That's it. So that was a bit of an exclusive. What episode numbers were those? Do you remember? So episode 53 was for the uh, trail breaking and cornering confidence. And then we had a, a get on again uh, after you started taking the numbers off. So this was episode 74, 75, 76. You can just give the title of the episode. Episode 77, Is Your Bike Crashworthy? There we go. All right. And then Paul Carruthers we had on. And I don't know the number on that, but you can look that up. Paul Carruthers was or is the communications director for Moto America. We had him on before the Moto America season started. Episode 60. 60, sweet. To kind of pump up the season, tell us what Moto America is all about. I kind of want to get him on again before this next Moto America season and really dig into more about how he used to be the uh, chief editor for, uh, was it Motorcyclist, Motorcycle Magazine? Wh which one was it? 
Oh, they all had such similar names back then. Um, anyway, uh, right. The, uh, our first guest ever was Brian. What episode was that? Like 30, something like that? 33? It was, yes, unofficially guest starring Brian, episode 30. Yeah, look at that. Uh, that was fun. Brian was a great sport. We we just decided we were going to have a listener on as our first guest. And Brian was the first person that had suggested, like, hey, I could be on the show. So we just had him on. And we had no idea how well it was going to go. And Brian was really fun. I really enjoyed doing that one. We should have him on again. Uh, let's see here. We had uh, Zach, the U.S. representative for, you know, um, Helite and Helite sales. We talked all about the vest. They sent us the demo vest. We talked all that up. We're huge on airbag vest more later on in this episode because we're going to cover some IMS news. We went to IMS yesterday and we found out some really cool shit about air, airbag vests from Alpine Stars. But, uh, yeah, that was a great one. Then... One of our more recent guests here I've got on my list, Vulcan Scooter Dan, for our episode Enter the Scooter Sphere, which is probably, what, 10 weeks ago? Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. That was really fun. We did a whole episode on just scooters. That was fantastic. Um, we had... I, I'm really proud of the two games that we played in that episode. Is it a scooter? And the other game, is it a scooter? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We famously had Miss Emma on the show to defend two of the worst bikes in the world this week. And damn it, we still need to have Emma on again to do that. I've got, there's so many bikes we've done that Emma could come on and just hand our asses to us and say, nope, you were wrong. This bike's brilliant for these reasons. Let's see here. The last guest we had was Matt, the paramedic which was fascinating editing that episode. There's like a hundred questions we should have asked him, but didn't. Oh, so we're going to have to have him on like, you know, every six months or something, because I have endless questions. Let's see here. You want to say something about having Alex on from break free? Uh, yes. We had Alex on talking about the, uh, the, automated helmets brake light which was pretty sweet and kind of getting the idea of like what does it actually take to go through and start i believe starts shipping to customers in like a week here something mm -hmm. like that very soon uh yeah and that was pretty sweet kind of getting the idea of you know how do you go about creating something like this what's the process you know kind of starting a business and how you navigate that space and if you want to start something up uh which is really cool uh what other guests do we have or is that is uh brendan from oh. the common motor collective oh yeah that was pretty sweet learning a lot about uh kind of what it really takes to build up a a true vintage bike also what it takes to keep a community garage going when it's not all run by someone's inheritance or kittens and rainbows right yeah like the hard the hard the hard realities of well we want this to be a sort of awesome communal space but someone's gonna need to pay somebody <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Oh, uh, you want to talk about um, Aline? Aline Metz from uh, Badass Biker Chicks? Or Diaries of Badass Chicks? Yes, we had Aline on to talk about uh, her show that she was pitching and just kind of her journey in motorcycling and motocross, which is pretty sweet. The inside story on that is two things. I was just swamped with work that week. I came in here on almost no sleep for like three days and halfway through the interview just completely blanked on what I was supposed to be asking her or whatever. It just took everything I could to just be like following her through the conversation. And um, at a certain point, I just completely lost my trail of thought. She's just went and she just threw out there. Well, do you want me to just tell you about my last vacation while you're thinking? I was like, yeah, sure. And she goes on to tell the story of going to like South America and being like held up and being like crashing her bike on some adventure. I mean, it was this whole thing. And after it was done, I was like, I gave a breakdown of all the events. And I said, Aline, why didn't we lead with this? What's going on? (laughs) And I think when I was editing it the next day, I was still so tired. I fell asleep in the middle of that and and like left all of that in. (laughs) There's like still like two minutes of me going, ah, I'm really tired. I don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) So that, that episode's worth it for that. Uh, let's see. And then um, Bob from Biker Gear Club was fun. That was a great episode to, again, learn about a motorcycle business. But we really kind of got into just a lot of Bob and his character in that one, which was good. We also discovered that not even R9T guy knows what the R9T is. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, Austin Rothbard from Twisted Road. We had him on. I mean, he's done every motorcycle podcast and continues to do. And I mean, really, we should have him on again for all the updates on everything that's going on with Twisted Road because we talk about a crazy idea that is just stubbornly marching on and succeeding, right? Mm-hmm. So many people thought this is this is lunacy. Why would you ever rent your motorcycle out, right? But people are warming up to it. We've interviewed a bunch of racers. There was Max Flinders, Jake Gagne, Westby Racing team um, manager, or was that his title? Team manager? Yeah. Chuck Giacchetto, Rocco Landers and his dad on Stoney, and Steve Scheibe of Scheibe Racing. So some big, you know, Moto America names there. Let's see. Events that we've gone to. Uh, Two AIM Expos. We've done IMS. We've done several races down at Circuit of the America for GP, Moto America, and Utah. So those were all fun trips that you've heard us report from. Just a lot of stuff we're packing in here as I look at this. Um, You know, before we do, because I've got loads more of this kind of stuff, let's take another break, sort of, and do worst, worst bike in the week or in the world this week, however you want to say it. So our voted all-time number one worst bike in the world. This is another episode with I maybe only 400 listens on this episode. So this was episode three, I believe. And so it's worked out very nicely that you have 
a best bike for the best and I had the worst for the worst because well, wait, how would the rotation have worked out for this week anyway? Uh, I would have had a best bike in the world. Oh, wow. So it really does just fit perfect. Okay. So, um, yeah, I did this worst bike. This was the, well, I won't reveal what it is. You'll hear that in the, in the episode. What I can tell you is the Kawasaki Z one RTC. And you're like, wait a minute, the Z one's awesome. Just be patient. You'll hear all about it in a minute. But this one was fun because I think of all the ones that we've done, this had the most reveals about just crazy facts of the bike. Like you had to just stop and say, hold on a minute, like three times (laughs) or something. It's been a while since I've heard the whole thing, but I remember coming in like smiling about this one because I knew I had something really good and I had notes on this bike as well. I didn't just read about it and regurgitate. Like I had pages I was flipping through. (laughs) This is back when I did more research and I cared. (laughs) So, all right, let's play this one and we'll be back in a moment. Okay. Worst bike in the world this week. All right, considering all the buzz that's around the 2018 Z900 RS, my memory was jogged about something I read about years ago, and it was worth revisiting, and this is clearly the worst bike in the world. Not the 2018 Z900 RS, but the 1978 Z1RTC. So let's go back in time a minute here. So in 1968, no, 66-67, the CB750 comes out. And this shits all over Kawasaki's parade. Yeah, look at that thing. That thing is nuts. So this shits all over Kawasaki's parade because they were trying to transition from two strokes to four strokes. So they were developing a 750 inline four and Honda beats them to the punch. So then Kawasaki, rather than just succumbing, doubles down their efforts and comes up with the Z1, the 900cc inline four sport bike that's so classic and everyone loves today. Now the problem is, is very soon after that, Suzuki comes out with an inline four and Yamaha, and, and everyone, you know, the XS750, all these other bikes, and one-liter bikes, and it gets very competitive very quickly. So what does Kawasaki do? Kawasaki starts working on the GPZ900 by the late 70s, but they had a shit ton of these things hanging around. All right, I'm going to need some specs here. I'm about to drop it on you. Now, in order to win the horsepower wars which they were already sort of winning. So the CB750 and all these other equivalent bikes were making like 60-something horsepower. This thing came out making about 82. At the time, huge numbers. Then they bumped it up, and the Z1 basically became the KZ1000. They put the KZ1000 engine in, and it got up to about 90 horsepower. Then Kawasaki realized they were going to need a couple more years to get the GPZ project off the ground, which, you know, changed everything. And they knew it was going to change everything. But sales on these had slumped. Uh, 
And then a guy named Alan Masick quit Kawasaki and started an American company making turbochargers. And he now again, this is 1978, right after 1977, the Clean Air Act. So all of a sudden, there were some emission things coming into play. So there was no way that they could legally sell this bike with the turbo and everything as it was. So Z9, so Z1s or Z1R Wait, let me, models. Let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah. Kit bike. Essentially. Well, yes and no. So Z1Rs were brought into the into the country. And then at the dealership as an option, they were kitted out with this turbo kit from this company, which may or may not sort of be Kawasaki related. Okay. Now, this bike weighed 560 pounds, which was up 54 pounds from the original bike. Now, this is still the same frame from the Z1 released in 72, right? Right. No, nothing. The only thing it is, they put another disc on the other side and it still stops like shit. The frame flexes like crazy. This is widely regarded as one of the worst handling bikes in history and one of the worst braking bikes in history. And but, it's got a turbocharger. But its party trick is that in 1978, this bike immediately got bumped from 90 horsepower overnight to get this 130 horsepower (laughs) okay (laughs) this thing has no business going that fast are those single caliper front brake i'm gonna give you a quote are those single piston front brake discs yes (laughs) okay so uh there they had this test writer i couldn't find his first name his last name was like farnsworth or something the quote was quote it was a wiggler at at uh at the time but only if you let off if you had the balls and held it wide open it was okay (laughs) this is a quote from their test writer (laughs) And full, and that I believe is a quote from him test writing the Z1R, not even the turbo version. Now, so the turbo they put on it was the wrong turbo. So the wastegate on it could be anywhere from six to ten pounds of boost. It came from the factory, tuned all the way down to six, right? And then let me see here, they um. So this turbocharger needed oil put in it every few hundred miles. Okay. Also, that was a bit of a trick because there was no toolkit in this bike because the other thing they did from the Z1R is they replaced it with a Bendix carb, which needed a fuel pump. And guess where they put the fuel pump? Where the toolkit used to be. So there was no toolkit anymore. <laughs> And not only that, but all the parts and the bolts and the screws on the turbo were SAE, whereas the rest of the bike is metric. So you needed a whole special set of tools to do it anyway. Hang hang on a minute. Hang on. <laughs> I feel like it would not be difficult to find somewhere on a bike to fit, you know, a, a small tool kit. This is one of those details that really qualifies this as worst bike in the world. <laughs> this sounds like 
This was absolutely <laughs> All right. haphazardly this thrown together was by the so, B team. Oh yeah, this bike was so overpowered and so dangerous and under-engineered that when you bought it, you had to sign a liability waiver with a witness. What? <laughs> Which not only removed Kawasaki, but um, what was the company called? Uh, Turbo Cycle Company, which is their the shell TC. corporation. The, yeah, this <laughs> re- re- removed them from all responsibility as well. Not only that, so again, I said I was talking about the boost on this thing, right? So people would turn up the boost. The problem there, again, because this was not a turbocharger made for this machine. It was just literally slapped on this, and they're like, "Cool, great, we're up to 130 horsepower." You know, dig it. So people would turn it up. So the turbo lag was extreme because the turbo was too big for it. So you'd pull the throttle, huge lag, and then the power comes in. But if you turned the the, the wastegate up, it would just keep spooling up. And the things got shitty brakes. So so without even realizing, all of a sudden you're holding the throttle in the same position, and the and the turbo keeps kicking in and uh-huh. spooling up. Uh-huh. So it's like riding a turbine power, like a turbine motor vehicle, basically. Yeah, and where it's you, just you like you've just got not the power, just keeps spooling up out of control. So you got to crunch the brakes. But of course, it's only got two single caliper or two single piston, two single piston disc brakes. <laughs> What? Exactly. So you could you could squeeze them and be slowing down, sort of, but the engine's still spooling up. It's still going, going, going. It's kind of, of course, just like holding a sail up behind you. And this thing to... didn't have electronic ignition, electronic ignition. So there's no rev limiter either. So it would just keep revving and revving and revving until, until it chewed itself to shit exactly until the um until the the valves were floating so much they just crashed into the pistons <laughs> <laughs> that's awful <laughs> it's completely unusable i, I mean, want one i know it, these are insane <laughs> money now these are insanely collectible in like perfect condition because it was such a huge mistake that there are so few of them well, left. why this is the worst bike in the world is because of any bike i can think of this is the most glorious failure i can think of i mean this fails good and proper in a really extreme pleasing way like i feel really good about this being the worst bike in the world <laughs> i mean you know and this thing set huge numbers of speed records like something like 40 different speed records just in the u.s alone like nothing was anywhere close to as fast as this you have to understand at this time 130 horsepower in 1977 there were ford v8s making like 114 horsepower right this was bananas crazy power this is after the muscle car era this is after um, clean Air Act, all the emission stuff is going on cars. Everything seventies rubber as well. Exactly seventies rubber. So again, set the scene. It's nineteen seventy seven. Disco has just ended. Everyone's waking up from this cocaine nightmare. Everyone's like, "Holy shit! I got to get rid of these clothes." You know, oh, my car is slow. 
God damn it. Music sucks. Rock and roll sucks. Like the eighties is just around the corner. And then here comes the Z one RTC, just this complete death trap when everything else is like, well, I guess we, but you know, this is around the same time as um, this is kind of, this is kind of like, um, this, this is almost as like unexpected and insane as like the Dodge Viper when it came out. All right. I've got some other interesting stuff here too. This bike was so bad that in 1979, so the next year model, they didn't actually, well, they put a different turbo on it, but the only thing they changed is the ability to turn the boost up. So it was just set at six. Oh, so you couldn't change it anymore. Right. It's like, However, bad, bad idea. When you bought it, you still have to sign the waiver, but Kawasaki also made you sign a thing that that said that they told you that they recommended that you yourself, you're buying a new motorcycle, and we're getting to the price in a minute. So you're buying this new motorcycle in 1979. They recommended to every buyer that they put in stronger valve and clutch springs Wait a minute. Yeah. They would <laughs> what? <put> the, yeah. <laughs> no, but there's more. They recommended that the customer retard the timing <laughs> and only use 107 octane fuel. <laughs> Kawasaki told the customers this. The deal, like... You buy you're buying a brand new motorcycle, and Kawasaki went. Oh, by the way, it's fucked up. You better do these things to it. <laughs> was that like? Well, no, it was more. It must have been more like. They're only by hint, the way. Their only hint at responsibility was stopping you to, to have the ability to turn the boost up to ten. <laughs> now it's like so, this is a dangerous machine. You should really make these modifications, but it's exactly the way you want. Yeah. <laughs> so so this bike um uh the z1r just the regular z1r which you could still buy because again this is a z1r it just had this extra package put on it basically um was three thousand six hundred ninety five dollars which in today's money is somewhere around fourteen thousand dollars the z1r tc was five thousand dollars in 1978 which today is roughly eighteen thousand dollars so this is like going into a dealership right now buying a bike for 18 grand and kawasaki goes oh yeah by the way the clutch the brakes the valve springs the final the final drive chain no good none of this is any good (laughs) these things apparently eight up chains in about 1500 miles this sounds a lot like this this at this point this would be kind of like in today's money this would be as if like some chinese manufacturer made a clone of the modern h2 and it's like seventeen thousand dollars again this is 300 horsepower but keep in mind it's seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah, and this is right after the original H two, right? Like Kawasaki's like, okay, we're moving away from two strokes. We've got to have the most ultimate bike. It's got to have this big, beautiful dual overhead cam because this was because this bike was um, dual overhead cam before the CB seven fifty was. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, so uh, you know, Ka- well, at least the original Z one uh, was. 
in well, like 72. I, I can't imagine how insane it would be to have a single overhead cam and the power band of a single overhead cam with a turbo. turbo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no. but here's the other important thing about this bike is so right after this, the turbo craze really catches on. This is when you get mm-hmm. the CX 500 turbo and all those other crazy turbos. And there was a bit, you know, and of course there were all those uh, GPZ turbos and Kawasaki had figured it out by then to some degree anyway. But this was just, uh, barely any testing if any at all they just threw this thing together to try to sell some leftover um z1rs while they were trying to get the, the GPZ, gpz off the ground <laughs> you know i'm really glad that they did but the machine is completely unusable it is only an awesome collectible just as a strange oddity and really nothing else because it sounds this is like a it has, widowmaker. It, this is the <laughs> definition. It sounds like it really had no no business being on the road. And it's the only appropriate location to have one is on the Bonneville Salt Flats. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it really lived. Uh, and apparently they didn't and of course they didn't sell very many. Like I think in seventy eight just it was only like, you know, five hundred to a thousand, and that was it. So these are these are rare birds, but this was available to anybody. Yeah, so there we go. <laughs> Worst bike in the world this week. No right. objections. Okay, let's end this bit. Okay, we're back. An honorable mention. I think the second most requested worst bike in the world was the Vespa 946 where I I kind of stuck it to Piaggio pretty hard. And I think I accused them of propping up African AIDS babies to try to sell unsold inventory. That did happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, are there any other, like just from, from our point of view, uh, best and worst bikes that we want to point out? Uh, so I think probably my favorite worst bike was the, the BMW K1. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's so awesome, but so bad. Uh, I think, uh, another one I really liked was the, the Honda DNO one. That was with the hydrostatic, the human friendly transmission. The human friendly transmission. (laughs) Let's see. What did I like? I liked the, um. I don't know why, but I remember when we did the Ducati Monster, it was just a moment where I went, you know what? I never considered how much this really has become an absolute icon in the motorcycling world. You brought it up, I think. And I was like, yeah, like, fuck yeah. That was really good to talk about that one. That springs to mind. Um, the the Moto Guzzi Centaro was one that shocked me. Yeah. You've brought in a few where I was like, I've never even heard of this. Um, and what else? I'm trying to think of another positive one, another like best bike that I really, really enjoyed out of nowhere. Um, the, well, uh, the, the Suzuki across the Suzuki across. Yeah. That makes the list. Yeah. 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 That's, that's exactly what I was looking for. The Suzuki across. I wish I had episode numbers for these, but I definitely don't. 
Well, that's a good time to bring up. Um, well, no, we'll bring it up in emails later on. Um, right. So let's see here. So we've had some people suggest their best of sort of favorites for made up motorcycle. And I think the second time we played this is where people have connected with it the most, at least in the emails that we got. So it's way too long to play to play clips from it, really. Uh, especially because at the end they all kind of like meld together into one super bike in that episode. <laughs> but it made up motorcycle. I guess we could just mention our favorites again. Uh, of course, the spork, the first one, definitely hold is we we've heard is is people's was some people's favorite. Um, uh, there's been so many of them. My favorite, I think, is a fairly recent one, the mojito. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the amphibious scooter. No, that was the that was the daiquiri. That was the daiquiri. That's right. No, the mojito <laughs> was the three wheeler, um, two wheels up front, one in the rear. But unlike the Nikon, it had a hard stop to stop the bike from falling over. And the whole point of it was that it would encourage island drinking. <laughs> so good. All right. Um, let's see. Moving on here. What else? Let me go through my notes. You know, we should talk about in 100. We should talk about in 100 episodes all the bikes that we've gone through. Mm -hmm. so let's see when we started the show i still had the the ninja yep and you had what the just the w650 i yeah, yeah i just had the w650 at the time so since then i got rid of the ninja and traded that in and got the super hawk i say traded it in i did not get a lot of money for trading in a 93ZX6E Ninja. But, you know, uh, I like to think that it got parted out and, and helped some other people. <sighs> Let's see. Uh, then, out of nowhere, you got a wild hair and bought the Norge, which yeah. shocked me. I was very skeptical. You were extremely unimpressed. But, you Even know, I kept my I... mouth shut and I thought if it's going to make him happy, let him <laughs> buy it. I didn't rain on your parade. You were unimpressed when I pitched the idea. You were unimpressed <laughs> when I was looking at the bike. You were unimpressed after I bought it. It wasn't until we took it to Austin that it really convinced you that it was a good bike. It took several hundred miles to convince you it's true but man it won my heart man it did uh, I, I mean i could i could ride that bike forever i could mm -hmm. just ride it forever it's so comfortable and it's still fun the power is good i mean the power is not amazing but it's good and oh it's great it sounds good it's oh everything about it i mean it's it's funky and weird looking but I've kind of reached that sort of mature bike. I don't give a fuck phase of my life, you know? So, all right. Then you, then you really lost it. Yeah. And you bought the Futura. Did I buy the Futura first or the Epco first? I don't know. Oh, no, it was the Futura. Yeah. Which, okay, there's a little bit of overlap here. Second <laughs> Italian bike. 
another big twin. But so far, that's been my favorite bike. That's the bike that I have connected to the most. Really? You like it more than the Norge? I do. I like the Norge better. Uh, But I fell hard for the Norge. You know, I think it was, and maybe part of the reason I love the Norge so much is that I was adverse to it in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then I just fell that much harder for it as a result, right? (laughs) Like the future I thought I was going to like, and I do like. And how can you not like that Rotax motor? And it's a little bit more sporty, and it's super funky and weird looking. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the Futura. It is all the things that I love. It's just so, like, it, it, it's, it's got that perfect amount of gas station conversation, yeah. right? No one's going to approach you for absolutely no reason because they're aware. They have no idea what it is, right? Yeah. There's no guy that's going to be like, oh, I used to have one just like it. No, no <laughs> nobody ever had one just like it. I, in fact, yesterday we were talking to an Aprilia dealer and he was like, yeah, I think there's like two of these left in the world. Huh? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I love that bike because it's yeah, it. Every time I talk to that guy, he loves to bring up the fact that they used to catch fire a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great bike, by the way. <laughs> it, it is. Like, it, it handles so much better than it looks like it will. Because mm-hmm. the bodywork is so big on the front, it makes it look super nose-heavy. Um, mm-hmm. But it just handles like a normal bike. <laughs> And there's something so fuck you about how it looks now. Like it must have looked in 2002 as as weird as like the NM4 looks to people now, the Voltus, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so dumb. All right. And then okay, so sometime around the same time, you really really lost your mind. <laughs> And yeah. bought the Ubco two by two. Yeah. Well. Well, if well, anybody should explain what the Ubco is for anyone who hasn't heard of it yet. Right. So we went to Aim in Vegas, and we met with. Oh, so I did get the Ubco way before I got the. I got the Future at last. Well, it was probably six months after we went to Vegas that you bought one. I'm sure a listener can write in and. Tell us. I want to say it was February or March after, because we went to Vegas in October, and then like it was in the yeah, it was in the winter. It was late winter when you got it. There was still a little snow around. Mm-hmm. Wait, no, 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 that's not correct at all. No, because you had it at Thanksgiving, so it was either early in the next winter or it was like two weeks after. I think it was like two weeks after, but I'm not sure. Anyway. In any case, you bought this two wheel drive electric motorcycle for like $7,000 or $6,000, whatever it was. It was like 6000 yeah. So kind of pricey for a vehicle with a top speed of 35, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a sturdy little thing and uncrashable. And then it was stolen. It was. But there may be updates to that soon. Well, it was recovered. We told people that. And then 
after that, you you notified uh, Geico, and Geico never came and picked it up. And then you were notified that Geico did not come and pick it up. And now we know that it's going to auction. We have special people on the case now letting us know which auction it's going to. So there may be a, a totally legit case of title laundering to get this bike back into my possession very cheaply. It's a good thing I held on to the charger. It is. Well, this is a perfect th- this is a perfect moment to bring up your whole glow in the dark paint obsession lately. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is your moment. You've been so proud of yourself. Go. Do I have enough time though? <laughs> well, I don't know what time we're at with all the segments that we're adding in. I'm going to guess we're only at about an hour and 15 now, so you're good. Okay. So, I've recently come to the conclusion that glow in the dark paint should feature much more heavily in everybody's lives in a big way. I have now taken to after Peter lost the fourth set of recordings for the show, uh, I've started to paint all of our SD cards with glow in the dark paint. A lot of other things will be painted with glow in the dark paint, including keys, cases, anything small and valuable that Peter may misplace is going to be painted. I also learned that apparently everyone is used has kind of been used from like kids toy and thing, kids toys and things to think that glow in the dark paint is really shitty. It turns out you can get ridiculously bright. Like if you mix up the stuff yourself, it's kind of pricey for the good stuff though. It is, but it's so much better than we were all led to believe. Oh yeah. It all glows about as bright as like those, you know, the, the, the bracelets and the headbands you get at the fair when you first snap them, that's how bright it is. Yeah. But for much longer. Mm -hmm. So, after the Futura was crashed, uh, well, I guess we've been thinking about what to do with that for a while, but now that I've got this insane idea, I think of the Futura might need to be glow-in-the-dark. I heavily support this. Now, again, at IMS yesterday, we got an inside line. We may be able to find some replacement body parts for it, but if we can't... I like this. The only question is, is do we vinyl wrap it first and then put glow in the dark paint over it? I mean, we've got to, we've got to like prep the body panels some way. I think the vinyl wrap is the way to go because otherwise you're just going to paint everything white, which is going to be more expensive anyway. You might as well just vinyl wrap it. Yeah, and just plain white vinyl wrap we can buy cheaply and have a go at doing ourselves, I think. Yeah. But now this is also a great... There's a lot of angles on that bike, though. It's true. Well, the other option is if we get the Upco back, that is also a strong candidate for for Glow in the Dark. Yes. That's got to be the test mule. And the best part is that you can do it... You don't have to do it with paint, necessarily. You can just do it with straight epoxy as well. You can mix it directly into epoxy. So we could go Technicolor. We could do all <laughs> sorts of it. 
<laughs> okay. Um, let's see the uh, a couple other vehicles around us. Uh, we were both riding and borrowing Dad's Vulcan 1600 Nomad a lot. Mm-hmm. That's been sold off. Dad replaced that with a Harley that you were riding for several weeks when something was up with one of your bikes, and I can't remember what. Oh, that was when um, a plank dropped off a truck and went under the bike. Oh, yeah. And then it, like, got flipped up, and it just, like, wedged between the ground and... Your brake lever, right? Yeah, and just snapped the whole thing off the frame. Or off a piece of the frame. Yeah, it well, it broke the brake lever and the bracket that was bolted to the frame that held the brake lever. Yeah. Oh, that was so crazy. Well, I kind of shudder just thinking about that. Like that plank just jar. It I'm glad have... I was wearing, I was wearing motorcycle boots. If I was not wearing, if I was just wearing shoes, that would have fucked my foot up. I don't understand how the bike didn't just jerk to the side. Because it weighs like 600 pounds. I know, but <laughs> it, it broke the bracket. Like, Oh, it must have the back wheel must have danced at least an inch or two to the side. Possibly. But yeah. All right. So uh, let's see. Back to show moments and things. Um, Okay. Here's some good ones. The best email. So a couple honorable mentions first. Sorry, Ryan from South Africa, who started his email saying, sorry, this is not from Deanne's word. Because <laughs> like for for ages, we had had a bunch of uh, listens coming from South Africa, but there were just two of them. And so I was just like, oh, I really hope that our listeners from South Africa are DeAntward. If you don't know DeAntward, it's this ridiculous, re- like over-the-top rap group, like husband-wife rap group or hip-hop or I don't even really know how to categorize them, actually. But they are sort of motorcycle enthusiasts. Like, I don't think I've seen a video that didn't involve a motorcycle somewhere. And... um yeah, so Ryan wrote in apologizing from the beginning, and it made us laugh so hard. But uh, the the actual best email was from Vlad. Simply, f- I mean, it was a great email where um, he talked about his CTX. He talked about his riding history, listening to us as a truck driver, all sorts of th- all sorts of great things in the email. But then he mentioned that for his fortieth birthday. His wife bought him a BMW police bike, and he said, no thanks, very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And they went out and got a different bike. The balls on this man. (laughs) Wasn't it like only a few weeks later we got another email from someone else? It was a similar story. Their wife or girlfriend had bought him a bike, and I was like, where are you guys finding these women? I can't remember. All right, then uh, our best review. Oh, this is an easy one. Yeah. This is so easy. Tell us this one, Swigs. So this is uh, from Soren, who had recently crashed his bike and wanted to tell us about it. Turns out that he had been taking a lot of pills for his pain. And then 
ended up leaving us an email as a review on iTunes that was mostly coherent. Yeah. 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 He, he actually sent us the email. I can only assume after he sobered up a little bit and like, you know, taking a nap or whatever, (laughs) but yeah, the entire thing is still listed as a review. It's a review. That's pages long. Apparently iTunes has no limits on how long a review you can leave. So you can still just scroll down our reviews, look for Soren the Viking and find that shit. It is, it is good. Okay. Um, let's see some other, uh, some other moments that people uh, mentioned was great. Um, there were a lot of moments from best worst bike that were, that say all oh, that time that you did this, or you were talking about this and whatever. And they were just really difficult to find. And I, or I couldn't find them, but, um, was it someone mentioned, uh, when we were talking about something about cliff divers. Do you remember that one? Cliff divers? Yeah, I I know. Like, there's something I I talk I was talking about Acapulco cliff divers and and said something about a bike to do with that. Like that. Uh, this is an example of like the moments people sent us. I guess when we get deep into talking about a bike and we come up with strange analogies or whatever, and it's like, sorry, bro, I don't I don't remember when that was from. You know. <laughs> yeah. So. We don't really have a whole lot more 100-episode stuff. We might do some follow-ups with some extra 100-episode facts and a couple more episodes. There is one last thing we should do. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, what was your favorite bike to test ride? Oh, wow. Oh, the Goldwing. Hands down, the Goldwing. Always the Goldwing. I'm going to have to go with the Goldwing, too. But I think we should also pick a second bike because the Goldwing's just too easy. Yeah, it's like if you're if you're like if you're ranking party schools, like you have to leave IU out, you know. If it's not that, then I have to say well, it's weird because the Bergman 400, the Bergman 650 was the one that put the biggest smile on my face because I was so nervous cuz I I'd sort of idolized it so much. And then <laughs> I went to meet my hero and it, and it lived up, right? I was like, yeah, it's not it's not amazing. It's not brilliant because I didn't expect it to be brilliant. I expected it to be weird. And it was as weird as I hoped it was. <laughs> <laughs> so but that's not really like the best one I um Husqvarna 301 or 401. Solid. That I I really loved that bike. I I had so much fun riding that bike. I'm going to also pick a small bike. My, I don't think it was the best bike, but the most fun and the bike that I enjoyed the most to r- r- uh, riding was the Ninja 400. I can see that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So with that, I think uh, we don't have a whole lot, whole lot more hundred episode stuff. Um, full disclosure. Before this recording, we went to IMS, and before that, I got divorced. So it's kind of been a roller coaster, and I haven't done as much prep for this in the last couple days as I hoped. So really, I've only got the ideas and the notes that I had like a week ago. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I think we, I think, hey, 
after the intro, I think I've I I've I've done my work. Okay, so um, let's go to uh, you know what? Let's let's hear a break from Junkie, who will I think put a put a pretty good button on on everything about episode one hundred here, and then we'll come back with some IMS coverage, and then we'll be done with the show. All right, this last song was from Bobby and the Tumbleweed Felchers, coming to you straight out of Poto, Oklahoma. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more phenomenal music from GSXR 600, The Squid. All right, are we off? Okay. This is Junkie Turdman, the host and creator of the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast, sister podcast of Nokomoto over here on the Moto One Podcast Network. I just wanted to tell the guys over there at Nokomoto, congratulations. A deepest uh, heartfelt condolences and congratulations. Condolences is probably the wrong word. Um, Adulations, I don't even know what that means. But uh, in the quintessential words of Oatfield Baker, baby, you've come a long way to make some hay when the skies are gray. I don't know if that was actually him that said that, but... You can edit that out. Anyways, it's it takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication and passion to bring you a motorcycle podcast every single week. Trust me, I fail at it weekly, so I should know. And I just wanted to tell the boys over there that they've done such a great job bringing us content, developing a listener base over the past months and weeks and years and probably a century. Um, I have no concept of time, but I think they've been around for around a century. And through these eons and decades they've been bringing us stuff like best bike worst bike uh some awesome movie reviews without them i wouldn't have known what akr is on o night riders i would have been fighting the dragon alone but luckily they're with us now and to uh to assist us on this journey through this motorcycle life together and i just have to say thanks guys for doing all that you do for the motorcycle community and congratulations on 100 that's a big number i remember when i turned 100 God, no, I don't. I barely remember last week. But at any rate, uh, you can edit that out. Um, 100 is a, is a big milestone for any podcast. And some podcasts have been on the sh- uh, airwaves now for years and years and are just now hitting their 100th. Uh, and for some, for others, it seems like such a far, far distant star in another galaxy. But the boys at Nokomoto, they've reached it, baby. And so it's about time... You- you let them stick their dick in your mouths. And, wait, you can edit this out. You can edit this out. All right. Uh, Junkie Turdmeister out, and congratulations on 100 great episodes. How about, like, five more good ones? And then call it quits. All right? All right. Oh, shit. Uh, Junkie Turdman, got to get back to work here. But uh, congrats, Mo- Nokomoto. Uh, two, one. All righty. Welcome back to another Rock Block to soften your cock here at GSXR 600 FM. The Squeal. And we're back. So we went to the IMS show yesterday, the IMS show in Denver. Uh, let's see. Walking into the show, this was our first time going to IMS. We've been to AIM before. We were led to believe that IMS was AIM's poor cousin. And I didn't find that to be true. I thought while it was about the show was about half the size maybe a third of the size, maybe even a quarter of the size. That was about half the size. Yeah. It wasn't tiny. It wasn't like there was nothing to see. The main thing is that there weren't a lot of the smaller vendors. 
it was mostly just all the main vendors. So whereas I whereas I, uh, whereas AIM just kind of like allows tons of different people to come in from across the country. Uh, the IMS events are a lot more slimmed down. So the smaller businesses and stuff and exhibitors are generally local as opposed to national level, like coming in from all over the place. And then everything else is just all the premium brands and the big companies. So it was definitely, it was, it was sort of like a little bit, a bit more local and sort of an abridged aim, if that makes sense. That's true, but I found all of what the companies brought to be pretty high quality. Like Kawasaki had essentially the exact same rig that they had to aim, right? Oh yeah, Honda. Honda brought a big. I mean, it was. Uh, I I thought they were going to have you know half of their lineups, or they weren't going to bring all the big signs and displays and the videos and the interactive stuff. But they did bring all of that. Yeah, and that was nice. I I. I don't know. I thought it, I thought it was going to be sort of a cheaper show, but it it wasn't. It was just as high quality a show. It was just simply smaller. Yeah. So that um and and there was a large area for doing all the electric vehicle test rides, probably a similar size to like it was at AIM, right? Mhm. So a few things that we noticed right off the bat. I think the first thing we pointed out is that now every manufacturer except for Honda has jumped on the motorcycle bondage train. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much everything now. There's a captive motorcycle strapped down to a rolling road that they're like, come and learn to ride a motorcycle. No experience needed. Hey, y'all. Check it out. You're going to be ripping. But you just get on a bike that's tied down and pull the throttle. And because there's no resistance on the road, it's not like you can really fuck up the shifts, right? Yeah, it's. uh, I don't really get it. I don't either. And if there was one bike that there was 10 times more of that you could sit on on the rolling road than any other, it was the live wire. There was like three of them you could sit on that way. Then three more just in like a lit up display and then another one just out on the carpet by itself. So I think every live wire that's not on its way to a dealership was present at IMS, right? Uh, We noticed that Harley Davidson, not a single skull, not a single eagle, not a single flame. And I only saw one dude on the floor with tattoos. Mm -hmm. They made sure they had at least, they had at least one black dude They had at least one Hispanic dude. They had two women. They had some dudes in skinny jeans and then like two fat Harley bros with beards and one of them in tattoos. Harley was going for diversity. And I'll tell you what, they really toned down the branding too. Well, I think they, I mean, they they kind of had to. The whole centerpiece of the display was the Bronx and the the and the the Pan America 
Was it though? Because we didn't even notice them at first. Well, we did, but like a lot of people didn't. Well, I mean, technically they were at the very front of the... The way it was set up was terrible because they were right across the doors, so the angle to actually see them. But technically, they were like closest to the doors. Yeah, if if they had been put in the center of the room, then they would have been on display. But it turns out they were close to the doors, and the front of the display was facing the wall. Yeah. So... <laughs> but, I mean, if those are what you're showing off, the new bikes, like, you can't just be all Harley bro about everything well i think i think the the live wire was the star of the booth by far they were making mm-hmm. the biggest deal about that and and you know to give harley credit when it comes to electric vehicles at this show they stole the show mm-hmm. if it was like hey you're interested in electric you have nowhere to go but our booth I mean, there were tons of bullshit e-bikes that were all just copies of other bikes and all of that nonsense, right? Yeah, there is like also you said one... at this point, e-bikes are the are the new e-cigs. Well, they're like there's e-cigs or uh, or like battery banks. Yeah, or you know, what's another example? Like fidget spinners. Yeah, like, it's the same it's, thing you can just rebrand a million ways. Well, it's the same thing you can rebrand a million ways, but also it's like something that overall is technically very simple to make. So there's going to be like a hundred new companies every year. And you don't know what's going to stay, what's going to go, what's high quality, what's garbage. It's just kind of all over the place. Yeah. So like, you know, we may see like the next e-bike that's actually the absolute best bang for buck, high quality and everything. It's just going to kind of pass you by because you can't look at all of them. Like there's just too many. Right. And then, yeah. So, so I said like Harley toned down the branding. It was just Harley Davidson in just white fonts or HD in white fonts. And then just the outline of the bar and shield. And that was uniform across everything. Mm Mm-hmm. It wasn't the whole classic American look. It was very, it wasn't, it wasn't pointing to the future. It wasn't pointing to the past. It was very much like, okay, we are trying to wipe the slate clean and we'll let you imprint on us whatever brand you want for the future, which is like what Harley did in the eighties. And it went all like mullets in America. Right. Mm. And Harley's just like, we are going to be as nondescript as possible. We're going to make sure we've got diverse faces and then you can just imagine whatever you want on top of that. Yeah. Which is smart. It's also a little cowardly, but whatever. I mean, they, yeah, they really had no other option or have no other option. If they want to connect with people, they need people to sort of mm-hmm. figure out what they want the company to be. Yeah. So it did seem like everybody there was fairly confident that all the new stuff was going to, the two new bikes were probably going to actually be in dealers by like late fall. We'll see how that actually pans out, but everyone seemed fairly confident about that. We should talk about the, the Bronx and the Pan America. Um, first of all, I really like them. Yeah, me too. Now, who was it that let slip horsepower numbers to you? 
Uh, so I heard this secondhand from a local Harley dealer guy who was talking to the Harley reps, and I think they let slip 114 horsepower at 8,500 RPM. For the Bronx. For the Bronx. Which is... It's pretty respectable, although I expect the bikes to probably be a lot heavier than other kind of street fighters. But that's still like 70 foot-pounds of torque at peak horsepower. So they're probably going to advertise peak torque as like 75 to 80 foot-pounds. The Bronx wasn't huge. I would not be shocked for the Bronx to come in somewhere around 470, 480. That's about what I was thinking, but that's still pretty heavy for for that style of bike. I don't know. A big grunty V-twin that's not claiming like ridiculous top speeds. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But I mean, that's kind of almost like exactly the profile that we said we wanted it to be. Yeah. When it was when the Street Fighter was. Yeah. Next. 114 of the cranks is going to put about 100 to the rear wheel about 75-ish horsepower. It's going to put about like 68 to the back wheel. That's that's perfect. Mm-hmm. That's just that's exactly what a one-liter liquid-cooled V-twin should do. It's four-valve. Like that's yeah, that's that's what all the other good ones make. Mm-hmm. There's no magic to get any more than that. So, well, I think, well, there is, but it requ- but it really kills engine life. Yeah. Well, I think the torque is going to be pretty significant compared to other V-twins. Well, we don't know the Born Stroke, uh, but we can kind of infer a few things from that that uh, that red line number, or that peak horsepower number. So it's not going to rev super high. No, I mean it's probably. I think you were right. I think it's probably very close to a square Born Stroke. Yeah, and I'll bet the twelve hundred motor just has a longer stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Pan America looked really good though too. We should talk about that. Everyone was so afraid of that shark nose when they saw the original pictures. Well, the original picture was a little shocking. It was it it was good in a sort of distressing way. <laughs> but the original picture basically was a picture of what we saw, right? Yeah. Well, the proportions have changed dramatically. I'm not sure they have. If you go back and look at those original pictures, I I think it's essentially the same thing. But everyone thought it was going to have this gigantic nose on it like the Street Glide. And it does have a big nose, but it's not nearly as ridiculous as people thought it was in the beginning. True. And, you know, it's not, it's big, but it's not gigantic. It's Mm. kind of like, it's all, it's... It's kind of V-Strom sized. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as I have no idea what it's going to cost because I don't know the extras. Looking from like, the controls on the handlebars and it looked like it had something. It looked like it had a little like pre- a canister to adjust um, pressure for the rear suspension. Sort of like a, a BMW sort of system. But who knows? Uh, I... You know, it's just going to depend how how much software is on it, how many rider modes, how many features. Because just as a bare bones bike, it seems it's got everything all the others have. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so just the amount of features is going to be whether it justifies BMW GS money. I would expect it to cost GS money. But who knows, right? Mm-hmm. We'll see. And, and the Bronx is a weird one, too. That could cost Ducati Supersport money, or that could cost Ducati Monster money. And again, I have no idea which. Because it's not that flashy a bike. Like I said, it's very impressive because it's Harley and it's new. But like I said, I didn't see anything on it that looked any more extravagant than on an FZ07. Yeah. Well, I think the other, the main thing about it is that it's, you know, these are brand new bikes. We don't know kind of like what the tooling's like. We don't know what the margins are. We still don't know what the final versions are going to be because these were basically the prototypes. So there's all sorts of like placeholder parts bin stuff on them. There was, you know, they had Brembo's on them that had never been on a Harley before. All sorts of weird stuff that you would never see that you'd never seen on a Harley before that they had kind of slapped together for the styling. We don't know exactly what we're actually going to get. And we don't know how much they're going to lean into this as what Harley thinks the premium on having their badge on it's worth. Well, right. Like I don't think the Bron- the Bronx should have Brembo's on it. It's not that kind of bike. Yeah. Regular brakes are pretty good these days, and they'll do just fine for this thing. Well, we also don't know if they're going to do different trim levels and different performance packages. Um yeah, the CVO Pan America. <laughs> I, uh, one other interesting thing to think about is with the Bronx, are kind of street bike guys really going to put up with the whole concept of stage kits? I don't think so. Also, at this point, uh, how many stage kits can you could you possibly do? I mean, the sky's the limit. <laughs> well, I mean, no, it, it must only be just ECU flashes. It would have to be a Tesla, like, oh, we've hobbled it. You have to pay us to unlock it. Situation, potentially, which no one will put up with. Even if they did, we'd, somebody's going to figure out how to hack it pretty quickly. Yeah. Okay, enough about Harley. Um, So let's see. uh, The next thing that got me was Kawasaki. Kawasaki in pricing has crept up on me. And holy crap, am I shocked all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So the new bike that Kawasaki had that's completely been lost in the news, and I guess you it doesn't seem that impressive on paper. You have to see one in person, is the new... Ninja 1000 SX. Yeah. So basically, Kawasaki took a look at Harley's confusing alphanumeric scheme and Suzuki's confusing alphanumeric scheme and has decided, fuck you guys, out of nowhere, we're going to add SX and SE into all the ZXs and H2s. 
and Zs and numbers, and we are going to create a naming scheme that puts everyone else to shame. You're going to need a fucking PhD to understand what models are what now. All I know is that SX is touring, but the concourse doesn't have SX in the name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the concourse is the G is the ZX fourteen GTR. Or Z fourteen G, I don't know. Or just maybe it's fourteen hundred. I think SX more specifically means this wasn't this isn't a tour, but now it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can get an H two, an H two R, an H two carbon, uh, a ZH two, an H two SX, and an H two SX SE. It's just it's. It's Oreo flavors madness at this point. Right. And then there's the this the the 650 Ninja, the ZX600, the ZX10R, the ZX14R, then there's the Z 650Z900, then there's the Ninja 1000. And so it was the Ninja 1000 or the Ninja 1000R last year, whatever. But now they've removed the single piece handlebars. They've given you clip-ons. They've added a couple more features like um, uh, real cruise control. They've given the fly-by-wire throttle. There's been some styling changes. They've um, upgraded the luggage, I think. And it may be the same luggage as last year, but it looks different to me. At least it did on the floor. And... It's like what was it, thirteen grand? Uh, for which one? The Z one thousand SX. Yeah, it was like thirteen grand. And holy crap, it's the most comfortable leader bike I've ever sat on. Now that's that may be just me in my body geometry, but you sat on it too and went, ooh, like I could sit on this for a long time. Yeah, and of course the whole time. They're trying to point us towards the um, the the verses one thousand. They're like, but that's got the active uh, suspension and whatever. And we're like, we're from the past. Slow down, <laughs> right? It's always weird to me to look at like the versus six fifty and the versus one thousand, where the versus six fifty is a super budget bike, and then you scale it up to the versus one thousand. With no real like branding or styling changes, it's just scaled up. But then they slap on a whole bunch of the premium features and the premium suspension that visually doesn't look like anything. And you go from like an eight thousand dollar bike to like a seventeen thousand dollar bike, and it always seems just well, men- they're painted so- into a corner because yeah. they have to have a premium adventure tour. Right. And they're only going to have one big adventure tour because they're Kawasaki and they're like, look, we're only playing this game because we have to pretend to because it's the hot thing that old guys want to buy. So they know that their whole thing is ridiculous performance bikes. You know, like Kawasaki is still trying to sell bikes to old guys with the H2, but they're trying to sell bikes to old guys who aren't fat. So (laughs) what's true, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're like, look, there's a lot of old guys that can still sit on an H2 because they're not fat. 
and we're going to corner that market. And that's where, that's why, you know, they didn't even have a regular H2. They had an H2R because how can you have an H2R and not show it at the show? But there wasn't an H2R. I'm sorry, there wasn't a regular H2 and there wasn't an H2 Carbon. But, oh, my God, they had everything with SE and SX in the name, right? Yeah. Because that's the version that everyone wants to buy because they're like, oh, it's still supercharged. It's still 230 horsepower, but I can actually sit on this all day. Right. And it's not the world's most comfortable bike, but it's pretty comfy, actually. I I could I could they don't look like it, but they're they're they they're pretty rideable. So that's their whole thing. They're like, yeah, we still have we we've got the ZX6 for an unbeatable price. And then the one that really blew my mind was the concourse. Yeah. I had no idea it was still that cheap. They just haven't touched it. They haven't touched the bike or the price. So it's the, the concourse is this strange time machine because it's like, it's a bike from like 2004, but it's also a bike priced from 2004. Yeah. Somehow inflation (laughs) is not caught up to it. So if you don't need all the crazy things, the concourse may be the greatest value motorcycle right now. It's a 1400. It makes like, I don't even know. I want to say it's like 170 something horsepower. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I believe it makes a hundred foot pounds of torque. It's f- I think it's 650 pounds. So like this thing will move it. So it's basically Hayabusa numbers, except it's more comfortable, has way more wind protection, comes with heated grips, comes with luggage, right? If you're the kind of person that was just going to go, oh, well, I want a Hayabusa, but I want it for touring. Fuck you. Get a concourse. Yeah. The Hayabusa is completely irrelevant. The, and, and that shocked us too. The Hayabusa, I didn't realize 13, 13 and a half grand, 13,000. Like, how? I, I, I said, well, to be fair, the bike's 20 years old. The, <laughs> like the concourse, like, it's nothing's true. really changed on it. Well, I mean, does it need to really get any better? I mean, unless you're wooed by a, you know, a, supercharger like a video display like you don't really care do you right like how much more power do you need none how much more torque do you need none maybe you want some some like traction con- well i think it had no it had traction control and abs as well they did add that stuff yes um so the two things that really matter i think you can only get it with abs and traction control now yeah and I mean, what else can you really add that's, like, not something you can do aftermarket way cheaper or better? Besides this, like, an integrated display and, like, Apple CarPlay, which, again, why do you need them? It's got all the things that actually matter. Right, they're not going to update it because 
they have to have something that's a Hayabusa killer in the ZX-14 and whatever. They've they've got some old ones they need to sell, but all the love has gone towards the H2SX and the Versus 1000 mm-hmm. because stylistically, no one wants a sports tour. They want an adventure bike, an adventure tour is what they want. And the guys that do still want a sports tour go for the H2SX which is a bit foolish in my mind because you get all of the same things essentially from the concourse. The difference is the H2SX looks cooler, So, which is debatable. There's also Kawasaki has basically put in... spikes on the front of all their motorcycles at this point. How do you... I don't understand. How does a supercharged tour make sense? It doesn't. It's it... just so you can show up with all your buddies at the ride, you know, at the rally or whatever, and they've got all their their BMWs and their verses and their Stroms and their Super Tenere's, and you go, look, mine is luggage as well, and it's supercharged. Your dicks must be so small. <laughs> yeah, it's it's for that guy, and you know what? God is there bless a mode that, that guy. like just turns the boost off. Or no, you can't because it's it's in, it's induction. Yeah, you, and you know the H two gets a lot of flack for being excessive, but excessive is fun. Excessive is fun, but you're now trying to cross the line. You're trying to co- like cross over from excessive to practical to some degree, which doesn't work. I agree, but. <laughs> there's something so stupid about it's like having taking... eco mode on your h3 like no like, yeah you can't you can't do it it's like yeah imagine if hummer decided they were going to release a hybrid like that's the territory we're getting into here yeah <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know that i i give the H2 line a bit of a pass because I don't want to become such a fuddy duddy that, that I don't get, you know what I mean? Like big horsepower superchargers. That's still fun in my world. And, you know, I get that turbocharging is not a great idea for motorcycles, giving them unpredictable power and all of that. But superchargers do make sense. It's a much more linear increase in the power uh, across the back, band. We could go back to turbochargers with modern electronics. It would be a lot better than it was in the 80s. This is true. But it would still have some problems. The superchargers are a better idea. Mm, yeah. But I agree. Uh, anyway. Uh, so anyway. So, so Kawasaki impressed us, actually. Even though we still are very hesitant on the styling. It's a lot better than Suzuki, who that might be the third thing. Suzuki really underwhelmed us. Well, I mean, Suzuki hasn't been doing a lot lately. There's nothing. Well, we agreed the the katana is still a win. Mm-hmm. Um, like yeah, the, the but they still haven't gone full force with it. The entire GS. GSXS line needs to just be replaced with katanas. 
you know, it's like I I I I dug deep and I went, well, remember the I think the VN eighty five. And you looked at me blankly, and I was like, so they took like a 650 or 550 V-twin and put a turbocharger on it back in the day and stuffed it inside a katana. And it made 85 horsepower or whatever, right? So it was a smaller displacement version of the katana, essentially, with a V-twin engine instead of an inline four. And... There's no reason they can't go for that again. It didn't work because it was the 80s and turbocharged bikes just didn't work. <laughs> there yeah. was a time everyone wanted them to, but Suzuki had one go at it and went, uh, is this just the RE5 all over again? <laughs> and so, so Suzuki needs to take that Katana styling, apply it to all the GSX-S bikes, and there you go. You can get a Jixer or you can get a Katana in whatever engine displacement flavor you like. And then they need to kill the Busa and come up with something more exciting. And people, the V-Strom has its cult, right? And then give us a new Dr. Big and Suzuki, all your problems are fixed. Guess what? That first one, that Katana fix, really easy to do. Because let's face it, if you look at just the numbers, the the GSX uh, bikes aren't bad. They're only just slightly edged out by like the Kawasaki Z bikes in terms of what you get like dollar for horsepower and all of that. But if you give them all the Katana styling, all of a sudden, well, no, there is a reason you've got a Katana. You've got a cool bike. It looks cool. Mm -hmm. Like even the Kawasaki Z bikes don't. Like Kawasaki took their outrageous looking Z bikes and with the H2 line made them look boring again somehow. Now that's only because the H2 bikes look ridiculous. Yeah. Especially the ZH2 is so beyond what I'm prepared to accept as a normal looking motorcycle. It looks like a movie motorcycle or like a, a weird custom motorcycle where you're like, okay, that's fun, but no one seriously rides this, right? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I, I do. I actually like the looks. I like the ninjas right now. I think they're okay. The regular ninjas, like the ZX6, the ZX10, the yeah. ZX400, yeah. I don't know, but but I, not not the Z bikes, the naked ones, the oh, Z six fifty, the naked Z900. ones. Oh, they're terrible. Right, I, that's I, what I'm talking about. Yeah, they've made but, those look super boring as compared to the H right. twos. But even with the number letter scheme, they still all have some element of character to them. Whereas if you rattle off the the Suzuki bikes, it's kind of like reading paint codes. Yes, it's. That's why they need to make them all katanas. It is. It's such an easy fix. I don't know what's going on. <sighs> okay. Now, if you wanted to look at GP and World Superbike uh, bikes from the past, IMS was your jam. Mm -hmm. We had Mark Marquez's 2013 GP bike. We did. We had Rin's... Rins' bike from last year? Yep. There was Johnny Ray's 
bike from last year. Yep. And I feel like I'm missing another one. Uh, Bobby Fong 600. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby Fong's Jixer as well. And, and well, there was someone's Aprilia. Uh, was there? Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, yeah, super cool to see all that. Uh, the the Marquez bike was the one you could actually really get up on. You could touch it and everything. The others were all like roped off. I don't think you were supposed to touch it. Well, I touched it <laughs> many <laughs> I did, times. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny. Like they, they'd clearly like replaced all the bodywork and given them better paint, but they still all look shitty. Yeah. It's always fun. I, yeah. We were let in an hour and a half before the public and we probably spent 40 minutes of it. Just looking at Mark Marquez's bike. <laughs> <laughs> like, we sure. should have been like trying to make connections and talk with OEMs, but we just <laughs> looked at Marquez's bike, <laughs> trying so to figure we, out what uh, was what. We should probably we maybe come back to some more stuff later, but we should probably wrap this discussion up because we still have two segments or two interviews. That's true. So uh, we'll yeah we'll let this one speak for itself a little bit. We talked with Alpine Stars. And their new inflatable vest, which was really compelling. Uh, I know that Dainese put something out like this about six months ago. But Alpine Stars has one that's... If you've already got an Alpine Stars jacket or thinking of... I mean, it'll go under any jacket, but especially if you already have something Alpine Stars, this is like the thing. So let's cut to that interview now. Test, test, test. Okay. Are we good? Are we good? Yes. All right. All right. What was your name, sir? Alex. Alex, we're here at the IMS show in Denver. We're talking with Alex at Alpine Stars, and we are talking about a new Tech Air vest. Tell us about this, because I'm impressed. Sure. So this is our newest system, which we just released. This is called the Tech Air 5. This is actually our third version of the airbag vest. Um, this uh, system is unique in comparison to our previous systems as you don't need a specific airbag compatible jacket or suit for it to go underneath. This is a standalone system, 100% uh, autonomous, uh, that will work underneath any motorcycle jacket. Uh, we recommend that you have about four centimeters of room between um, the vest and your jacket, especially if it's going to be leather. Uh, again, it could be any brand jacket, so someone doesn't have to make the investment of getting the vest and then also getting an expensive jacket that's designed for the expansion panels and all of that of the airbag system. The reason I mention that is that's what we had on the previous systems. All these jackets you see we have on display here and all the suits and jackets you see on display over there, they're all Tech Air compatible and we'll actually even say that on the left arm of, of, the, uh, of the jacket. Uh, but this system here, again, it's going to be $6.99 retail. Um, this will be available, should be in stores by uh, March of this year. Um, it'll also uh, come with an app uh, where you can actually preset uh, your choice of an emergency contact. will actually be notified in the event that you are in an accident or that your airbag does deploy. And it'll also give them your GPS coordinates as well. So looking at this, it basically looks like it replaces any armor or anything you would need in your regular jacket except for elbow pads. Yes, so if you do have, I mean, having the hard armor compared or paired with the airbag is the best 
protection you can possibly have. One of the reasons why we have built-in back protectors on all of our airbag vests. Uh, so this here, you can see we have our Nucleon cell technology in, that we use in all of our back protectors in this one. It's quite flexible, it's very breathable, and most importantly, it's really lightweight. Uh, this is going to be very comfortable for the rider. The entire system itself is about one and a half kilos, depending on the size of the vest that you're going to be wearing. Some will be a little bit lighter than that. Um, but again, uniqueness of this uh, product and all of Alpine Star's airbag systems, these are proactive systems. They're not reactive. So because of the algorithms that we have developed with these systems in many years of development, again, the project started all the way back in 2001, um, we are able to um, have accelerometers as well as gyroscopes throughout the system that communicate with the ACU, which is the airbag control unit, on a millisecond level. So for every second that you are riding, there are 1,000 communications between all the different sensors in the ACU. It is reading your rider movements constantly, even from a dead stop. Um, and so the reason that we have that is so that the airbag can deploy ahead of the first impact, which was the entire purpose of the airbag project before we even started putting sensors on GP riders and actually developing working systems. So the whole purpose of Tech Air is to deploy ahead of the first impact. This will deploy uh, within the 25 milliseconds. So to give you an idea of how fast that is, 25 milliseconds, uh, average blink of an eye is about 190 milliseconds. That's eight times faster than you can blink. It's 1 40th of a second. It's instantaneous. Yeah, I mean, uh, was it 80 milliseconds on our Helite vest? Yeah, so I know, well, it is, I, I believe the Helite does fire off incredibly quickly, but the problem is always going to be that it doesn't start to inflate until that tether goes. And that's really the advantage, is not how fast does it actually inflate, but also how quickly does it respond to the accidents. And that's yeah. really where this will have a huge advantage. So I guess my question is, you know, there is a little bit of a flaw in the Helite system with the tether in that if you don't tether up, then you've basically done nothing. Right, or so, if it breaks somewhere other than where that sensor is on the actual ripcord, um, then it, you could have no deployment. There's a, there's a possibility there. So my question is, how idiot-proof is the whole electronic system in terms of, like, how often do you have to charge it? Uh, does it, if you have the app, does it tell you if it's low on battery, like, so that it's really just like a once a month thing maybe or once a week thing to actually charge it up like what's the what are the numbers there sure good question so i'll go over that so uh yes within the app it'll actually let you know what your exact battery percentage is uh, for every one hour of charge time you have on this you will gain four to five hours of ride time the entire system uh full charge will be 30 hours of ride time which is about five hours more than uh, our current race system so 30 hours of ride time uh, is quite a bit. I have some coworkers over, we work in the uh, Torrance uh, over in California, uh, commute to work every single day, charges it once every couple of weeks. The actual ride time is a lot less than the time that you may be wearing it or the time that you just have the system on. The other foolproof uh, thing about our new Tech R5 system is that there is no on off switch. It is based on a stability check. So when I connect, or when I connect these magnets here on the closure on the front, then um, the lights will go off right here. It'll be a red, uh, yellow, and green light, letting me know the system has done a stability check uh, and it is on. It's running, uh, and it will be active at a dead stop as well. 
30 hours is impressive. Like, that means this just passes the, the iron butt test with flying colors. Like, go, you go a thousand miles and not think about it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for recharging it, what's the, what's the process there? Uh, micro USB cord. Um, I actually, for, for my- No, I'm at recharging the air. Oh, you're talking about the airbag system. So once it deploys, what's the process of that? Right. Yeah, the repack or whatever. Good question. So I've got a lot of questions on this. A lot of people think that maybe it's just a one-time use thing. Not the case. So it is a little bit different um, than our um, race system and actually even more affordable. So with the, the new system, once you have a deployment, uh, you will send your airbag in to get uh, the argon canisters replaced. The argon canisters are located right here, protected inside. Oh, it's not CO2 argon. Okay. So argon is what we use uh, to actually inflate the airbag. So argon will not only inflate the airbag faster uh, than air or CO2, um, it actually is denser than air, uh, which provides better impact absorption on the actual airbag itself. For example, from our testing, um, if you were to compare um, CE level one rated hard armor versus the impact energy reduced that the body would absorb with an airbag, it's reduced by 95%. It's compelling. Okay. I've tested it several times myself on the racetrack. Uh, I'm a bit, bit of a crash <laughs> dummy myself. It works. It's awesome. Now, you're not going to just trip over and fall and it goes off, right? Um, that's uh, well. Hopefully, you're not uh, tripping over while you're and stuff. But no, it's it's again, it's an algorithm that's actually designed to recognize the rider's movements while riding a motorcycle. Uh, okay, and I think my last question is: when you send it back in to get it recharged, is, uh, what's the what's the cost on that? So, uh, as of right now, on our race system, if you uh, or on our street system, if you were to send it into our Torrance headquarters, which is where we do the repacking service, um, it would be two hundred ninety-nine dollars, uh, and that would involve them replacing the canisters as well as the airbag bladder. They'll also go over the entire garment and make sure your all your stitching is good. There's no actual damage to the system. Um, I. For example, I've been using my race system for about two years, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, I've had the thing repacked, um, I believe, three times now. Um, so the vests are very reusable. Uh, the actual jacket or suit that you're wearing over it actually protects the vest um, in the event of an accident. But um, consumer would pay shipping into uh, Torrance headquarters. Uh, we would then uh, replace the canisters and the airbag bladder. We would pay shipping back to the customer. Depending on where you're shipping from, it's you typically see your unit back inside of a week. So okay. I do have uh, another question. Um, and now I've lost it. Uh, uh, what was I going to say? We can edit. It's okay. fine. So for... Um, Say you've owned one of these, you know, two, three years down the road, fortunately never used it or never had to go off. What can you do to actually just make sure that it's still good, that, you know, one of the canisters hasn't leaked or that there's some other issue, maybe a seam's gone? We said the system check, right? So... So that, so the system check right there is um, a good question. So I'll, I'll answer that. But the system check right here, just to touch on what I'll say on the lights here. So the lights can not only let you know that the system's on, it's running, or even what your battery life is, depending on what uh, combination of lights uh, it'll show you. The app will show you that battery percentage and all that as well. Um, but as far as doing a diagnostic, you can absolutely send it into our headquarters and do a diagnostic on the system. And they'll go over the entire garment, make sure it's good. For example, we do recommend if your system's been sitting for 18 months and you haven't charged it or you haven't been using it or anything like that, be a good idea to send it over uh, and get that checked out. Uh, I myself uh, probably could send it in uh, more often than that. I definitely have it. 
uh, on my on air, my airbag fast, it probably gets repacked more often than that. So I don't I never need to do the diagnostic. But again, anytime it's getting serviced, repacked, getting the canisters replaced, or for example, on this model, if we're getting the canister replaced, or the canisters and the airbag bladder replaced, we're still going to go over the entire garment and make sure that everything is 100. percent All right, that's good. I'm super impressed. I. You know, as I said, I've been tracking these for years, and it was always like, oh, I'd love to have an Alpine Stars one, but they're like twelve hundred bucks, whatever. Now they're seven hundred. They're competitive, and like they said, come with quite a few features. With the addition of the app now, and you having your, you can preset your emergency contact in there. They'll be notified if you are in an accident. Have your actual location. On top of that, there's some fun stuff that comes with the app. Aside from being able to check your battery life and things like that, you can actually uh, track your trip, basically a geo map of, of what your trip is on your motorcycle. You can see where you've been, see your highest speed, your average speed, um, lean angle, some things like that. So um, there's a lot of stuff that comes with it aside from the Lean protection. angle. That sounds dangerous. That's like that's like having a breathalyzer right at a party. Everyone's <laughs> got to see how high they can get the number. If everyone's stopping at the gas station comparing leading. <laughs> I would hope that on the street no one's, you know, comparing that. But um, it's nice to be able to have some uh, information like that uh, available to you, just for yourself personally on there. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, thank you, sir. Of course, you're very welcome. Right on. Cool. And then, let's see, finally, we hung around a bit and talked with long haul Paul, man, long haul Paul, what a guy, right? I, I, we've had discussions where we feel like we must be in the top, like 5% of people who can ride long distances. We can just ride and ride all day and we don't complain. And we can, we, you know, the, the number of people that, say they ride really long, but then you ask them, well, can you do iron butts or, you know, will you just accidentally end up doing them, right? You start getting into very rarefied air very quickly once you start getting to that thousand miles in one day mark. And then you talk to people who can do it multiple times a year. And then you talk to people that can break a thousand miles in one day multiple times a year. And then there's long haul Paul. So he was diagnosed with MS and then he's been basically riding as a nonstop charity for MS for seven years. He's trying to do a million miles and he's done 400,000 already. And we sat and watched a seminar he gave on fast and dirty fixes, which was really good actually you should hire him to come to your event to talk about that. And yeah, let's uh let's roll the interview with Paul and it's just it's just fun. Okay, another interview here at IMS in Denver. We're here with Long Haul Paul. And you said you've got up to about 400,000 miles, right? Uh yes, I think um probably about uh well, I just did 2,000 miles the last 48 hours, so I'm, I think I'm about uh, 402, 404, somewhere around there, uh, of my million-mile goal for uh, all for MS. That's amazing. So you've been doing this for seven years? Uh, yeah, a little, little more than seven years now. And um, uh, yeah, I just I, I started, 
you know, trying to figure out something I could do to get back to the uh, to the um, to the MS world. You know, I'm um, my MS uh, has been has been treating me uh, pretty well. I'm I'm kind of lucky and uh, that my symptoms and progression has been very slow. So uh, I wanted to get back, and the only thing I really know how to do is ride a motorcycle. So uh, I just uh, decided one day to to start. Uh, raising awareness and raising money for MS and uh, using a motorcycle to do it. I love it. So uh, you're a, you're an iron butt rider. We've done some iron butts. We we do uh, at least one every year. Um, you uh, you got uh, you do like a a charity like iron butt of your own or something. Is that correct? Uh, I do. I uh, every year I run uh, I run the um, excuse me I run the MS five thousand, which is. Um, 50 days for MS, so it's a lot like the MS walk, whereas riders from all over the country um, basically uh, record their mileage. And for 50 days, they, they try to dedicate their rides to MS, whether they're going to work or going on a trip or not. Uh, they record their mileage, and uh, there's bonus points for how many miles you ride over those 50 days. And we have trophies and things, and, and of course, we're trying to get people to um, uh, collect donations from their family and friends, and they get uh, you know 10 points per dollar and one point per mile. And the goal is to try to you know reach 5,000 points. And um, every year uh, it grows, and we've got uh, this year I think we raised about $25,000. Uh, riders all over the United States, some in Canada. Um, that's great. And then also the uh, the Iron Butt Association now sanctions okay, uh, MS 1000, which is a 1,000-mile uh, saddle sore, the regular Iron Butt saddle sore, but you do it uh, in the name of MS, and you get a special certificate um, for the MS 1000, special decal and things like that. And that, there's a, a small donation that goes to the, the charity that I'm working with. So that's something you can do right right from the Iron Butt Association. Cool. Now here, let's stay that's way better. Um, so we just saw you give a presentation with a whole bunch of tips and tricks for staying on the road. That was just that was excellent. Um, just the uh, the you have to say ballsy fixes that you've done with some some epoxies and uh, and some some new things that are around these days that didn't used to be. Uh, what's what's probably the uh, in all the miles you've done the the fix that you've had to do the most. Well, I, I mean, I ride in all kinds of weather. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, where, where is this, uh, January, and, and I just rode from New Hampshire to Dallas. Um, so so uh, what happens, what I find is um, electrical things, and mostly the things you add to the bike. So in the last three weeks, uh, I've done about 8,000 miles, but I also, I had to buy a new iPhone because I melted the, the power port, even though it was waterproof, it ended up melting. My heated gear, the plug, one of the plugs soldered itself together. Uh, I've had some, some trouble with my lock sticking in the frozen, frozen temperature. Um, let's see, what else? I mean, so what happens with me, it's mostly electrical issues. It's mostly I'm fixing wiring. Uh, my heated gear always breaks down through the winter. Um, I do carry spares of everything, but also I carry I carry soldering iron. I carry uh, you know things to repair stuff on the road because you know I'm not going to find a dealer tomorrow who's going to be able to fix my my wiring or whatever. Um, and you know they're not going to have a wiring harness in stock. They're not going to patch something together. But heck, I got to be in New England Tuesday. So if something breaks on the bike, I need to fix it. I need to know how to fix it, and I, I need to have the stuff with me or or easily accessible. Uh, items to be able to fix just about anything on the road. When it when it comes to uh, when it comes to items to carry to um, 
you know, make life more convenient, whether it be like, you know, your your mug there, your iPhone mount, or whatever. What's the, what's the one item you've got that really surprised you? Like, holy crap, I didn't realize this was going to be so useful. Well, I mean, heated gear is one of those things that, you know, no matter how many years you ride without it, the day that you ride, the first day you ride with heated gear, even if it's 50 degrees is the, the coldest you ride, that the first day that you use any type of heated gear and realize that your riding, your riding season was just extended incredibly. Um, I think heated gear is really the biggest. Uh, I don't think I could have ridden yesterday. It was um, 10 degrees for 500 miles through uh, Kansas with a 75-mile-an-hour uh, north, north breeze. Um, I don't think I could have done that without having um, heated gear. So I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, GPS, you know, I, I do have uh, cognitive issues. Uh, multiple sclerosis took away my ability to, uh, to know where I am <laughs> at all times. So having a GPS and having um, mapping software and, and weather maps and things like that, um, having access to that while I'm moving is incredible for planning my days, planning the, you know, my long trips and, 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 and uh, cross-country adventures, um, you know, having, having the technology is really helpful, um, not just for people who have um, disabilities like myself, but for, for anybody who's traveling. Um, I think the uh, GPS, the apps and things that we have today are just incredible. Okay, now you're riding here on what I'll call a very much broken in Yamaha Venture. You've done 95,000 miles on this bike. Have you given it a name? I don't actually name my bikes until I'm done riding them. Okay. So uh, I have a Cure Chaser 1, which is down in Barber Motorsports Museum on display. And then I have Cure Chaser 2, which was donated last summer or uh, summer before, was uh, actually raffled off. And there's a gentleman in uh, Vermont who's riding that around the around Vermont right now. That was Cure Chaser 2. So there's a good chance that when I'm done with this bike, it'll be called Cure Chaser 3. Okay. And you're getting a, another bike fairly soon. You want to talk about that? Uh, I am. Uh, Yamaha has, um, uh, they announced uh, at the Long Beach show that they're going to uh, to have me ride the new 700 Tenere, which is the, uh, the 700 Tenere um, adventure bike it's going to be a you know a great all-around motorcycle uh it, it's um it's proven itself in the dirt and sand and gravel and i'm going to prove it as a uh, long distance adventure bike i'm going to outfit it with uh, kit it up with just about every option i can think of and, and make it into a long distance bike and it's going to allow me to get back off road a bit and do some do some uh, I, I like to do uh, I'm starting to do a lot more photography and video and stuff like that and I, I'll be able to get off road in some of those remote and uh, rural areas um, and it's going to be just fun switching up and going back to an adventure bike uh, I think every bike's an adventure the the Star Venture has been an awesome cross-country touring machine uh, I, I've never ridden anything quite like it uh, the the storage uh, the power, the torque of that V-twin is just incredible. Um, but I am looking forward to going to a tiny bike, going back to a, you know, a smaller bike, and um, having fun um, off-road and stuff like that. So uh, I'll probably keep the Venture, especially when the wife and I are going on some long trips, take the Venture. But um, I'm looking forward to being on the, uh, on the new Tenere and uh, doing some stuff with that with, uh, with a lot of different uh, aftermarket companies that make, make all kinds of products for it. And um, 
if you ever saw my other Tenere, you'll you'll know that um, I'm not a stranger to um, accessories and, and uh, outfitting it for the long haul. I'm going to do the same thing on the 700, and um, I look forward to it. Hopefully, we'll get that in the beginning of the summer or maybe late spring. Who knows? But um, yeah, it's going to be fun. I think every motorcycle I've ever ridden, I've had fun on, and so uh, they're all fun. As long as they don't break down, they're all fun. It, that doesn't look like a stock rear tire you got there. What is that? That is the stock rear tire, actually. No That's kidding. It. It's a 200 series tire. Uh, it's a pretty wide tire um, yeah. on the Venture. Um, that's a Bridgestone tire, and um, it uh, holds up pretty well. Uh, especially this this bike's got so much torque. Uh, it takes a tire that wide to keep it on the road, keep it going straight. So, okay. Now, uh, how many days of the year do you think you're you're normally on the bike? Um, I checked. My wife lets me know. Actually, I think I think last year was about 160 nights on the road, or days on the road. Like that sounds like a lot, but I, I wish I could do that as well. I, I, oh, it's so much, but man, I, oh. And uh, I guess the last question: um, one, uh, when do you think you'll hit a million miles? And two, do you think you'll actually stop? Well, uh, you know, my goal is a million miles or a cure. So if they do come out with a cure for multiple sclerosis, I think I'll take a break for a little bit. <laughs> Family would enjoy that. Um, I, I don't know. Originally, originally I thought I could do 100,000 miles a year, but um, and I could do that. But my goal is to make every mile count towards MS. So I don't leave my house and go ride 100 miles in circles around my house to add up the miles. Uh, if I'm not going to an event where I'm speaking or a uh, like here where I'm, I'm raising awareness and doing presentations uh, about MS, if I'm not going to those events, my bike's parked. So. Um, you know, I'm averaging between 50 and 80,000 right now. Uh, the more, the more people that ask me come speak, the more uh, miles I'll get. Uh, the further away, the better. Um, but I didn't put a time limit on. You know, originally I thought 10 years, but it's probably going to be closer to um, 16 or 18 years is probably what it's going to going to take me. Um, I'm at four, you know a little over 400. Um, maybe I should have said kilometers. I'd be halfway done by now. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the goal is a, is a million for MS, and I, th I think afterwards I'll probably, um, you know, wash the bike, take a couple weeks off, and then my next goal is uh, I want to be the first person with MS to ride a motorcycle in space. <laughs> I love that. Well, cool. Well, God bless you, man. Thank you. You are doing an excellent Great job. Great meeting up you guys again. I hope you yeah. the show. A lot yeah. of stuff to see here, and uh, right. these shows are a great way for people to get out and see the see the new models, sit on them, you know, um, test stuff out, check out the new gear. Um, these IMS shows uh, they happen because people come out, and um, there's some great seminars as well. But um, it's uh, it's a good place for people to get together in the winter that all have the same interest, riding motorcycles. They've got a great section about for people that want to learn to ride motorcycles, learn to ride. Um, uh, where, where people can actually uh, get on a bike without the, the fear of being on the road, learn how to shift a bike and stuff like that. So people that are interested in learning about motorcycles, these shows are a great way, great place to come out. Just real quick before we let you go, uh, what's your website? Where can people find everything? Uh, sure, it's uh, Long Haul Paul, one word, 
and that's um, longhaulpaul.com is my website. Also Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchatter, all those things, longhaulpaul.com. One word, no spaces. And um, yeah, you can sign up for my blog. You can, uh, you know, like, share, follow uh, me on Facebook, YouTube. Growing my uh, growing my social media really is going to do a lot to help me get more sponsors and help yeah. keep me on the road. I'm I don't get paid to be here. Um, I've got a lot of help. Good sponsors: Yamaha, Bridgestone, Aerostitch. All all have been helping me along the way. HJC, TCX uh, have all done great um, great help uh, providing me with product and gear. And uh, looking for a few more sponsors. If you know somebody who works at Marriott, give them my number. <laughs> I could use about a million points a year, or uh, maybe some gas sponsors would help. But um, but growing my growing my social media really is a big way to people can help me uh, gain more sponsors and, and continue continue riding because uh, it isn't cheap being on the road every day. It's right. pretty expensive. So um, yeah, like, share, follow, and get the hell out of the way because I'm on a million mile journey chasing the cure. Excellent. Okay, so now we're done with that. So this is a really long one. I think people th- thought that episode 100 was going to be pretty long, <laughs> and it has been. Uh, but you know what? It's like, you know, it's like the show's turning 18 or something, right? Like, or it's our sweet 16. It's This is just, th- this is our day to be indulgent and go super long if we want. So I don't know. Should we just talk a little bit about sort of... um milestones and milestones that we want to hit like things that we'd like to do with the show real quick because i i still like this idea that we've been toying around with different kinds of charity ride events i think in at least in the next year we'll know when we'll do one right we've probably got enough local listenership to do one already but I kind of want to find the right partner with a dealership or someone else to, to really make it big. I had this crazy idea a couple weeks ago. I was talking with Junkie, and I thought, what if we did a theme ride? Because I was thinking about the success of... Um, oh, that's a guest that we forgot to mention. Um, Jason Lewis... Uh, Ride Cymru and Ride oh, Knievel. Yes. Well, sorry, he's getting a mention now. Gee, how did I leave him off the list of guests? Um, so, what if instead of an evil Knievel ride, and this is really going out there, a Night Riders parade? Well, now we have to. Yeah. <laughs> What if we just recreated the parade scene from Night Riders? Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> it doesn't even have to be very far. It could be like eight blocks. Can we like? Can we um, like partner with Renfair or something like? Something. Uh, yeah. I, we just need a couple thrones and like a cheap, a cheap. Um, <laughs> A cheap flatbed truck. And, yeah. You know, we could also do, like, a ride where everyone's just dressed up as knights and things and and rides somewhere. But I kind of feel like 
a night riders parade through like you know down colfax or something for like eight <laughs> blocks would be amazing right that would be pretty sweet um yeah but we've also talked about relay rides that we could do uh we kind of want to avoid a big like giant group ride because of the aspect of extra risks and accidents and whatever but at some point we want to put on a big charity ride and probably for habitat for humanity um especially because we already have a whole bunch of like great logos and branding for that from past rides that I've put together. Then um, we're still toying with this Patreon idea. We're getting closer and closer and closer to actually doing it. So we may put those first 50 episodes behind a paywall. We may not. We'll do something. Coming up with extra content's never going to be a problem. And then uh, let's see. I'll tell you one thing that we really want to do is we want to start this Patreon to get some better microphones and things. I think we do a good job of making our show sound better than average, but we would like to get it to actually sound really good. You know, the better it sounds, I I feel is especially important for motorcycle podcasts since a lot of people listen while they're on the bike, you know, they're listening in their pack talk of their Cena and the clearer the sound, the better that's going to be for you right there. Let's see. We want to, yeah, we want to buy some microphones. We want to build some sound walls to put around us. Um, We're thinking this year we might go and do cover GP in the UK at Silverstone. That's very iffy, but we're thinking about that. And there's other events that we want to be able to go to, and it's expensive. We want to go and cover and see what everything's all about at, AMA Vintage Days. There are, I mean, the Moto America races are all over the place. I've got a weird project I'm working on trying to get different podcasts to go out and cover races and see if we can get a deal hooked up with Moto America. We'll see if anything happens with that. There's a lot of things in the works, basically. But we still have day jobs, right? (laughs) So... For all this stuff to happen, we kind of need a little bit of a flow because we love doing it and we'll not we will not stop doing it. But at a certain point, it becomes very difficult to keep upping the ante, right? Mm-hmm. So uh yeah, with that, um, I guess thank you to everyone for listening for a hundred episodes so far. We'll do another hundred or whatever, at least, I'm sure. And we'll see where we go from here. So thus far, it's gone pretty good, I think. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no. All right, cool. So let's hit the outro here. And reminding everyone, stay safe, stay tuned, and keep fighting the dragon. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my mo. Side. Mm-hmm. Cold.